Clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm, welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller Special Client Event. Today's event is the 28th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming, and Executive Vice President and Head of Corporate and Institutional Banking and Asset Management at the PNC Financial Services Group, Mike Lyons. If you're unable to stay with us for the duration of today's event, a replay will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcast. And with that, as always, it is my pleasure to introduce the President and CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom, and good morning, colleagues of Rockefeller, our clients, and other special guests of Rockefeller Capital Management on, as Tom said, the 28th in our client event series that we began last March of 2020. Today, I've got a very special guest with whom I've worked in different capacities for nearly a quarter of a century. Mike Lyons, who, as Tom said, is currently an EVP and head of corporate and institutional banking at uh, PNC. Mike's had a tremendous career, and we're going to get into some of the professional parts of it uh, in a little bit across a number of different uh, top quality firms and a number of different skill sets. Uh, I did want to upfront talk about the things that he does outside the office as this is important to him and his family and really goes to the nature of the man. Uh, Mike is a national trustee of the Boys and Girls Club of America, and he currently serves on his investment committee, which given uh, Mike's uh, day job and all the things he's juggling, including family, uh, is a great way uh, for him to give back. He's the board chair for the Pittsburgh Parks Conservancy, a member of the board of directors of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and he's a member of the management committee of early warning services. He's embedded in the Pittsburgh community. He and his family uh, have been there for a number of years uh, and like it a lot. And he's giving back to the community, which is something that he's been focused on since I met him as uh, a very young man, as I said, almost 25 years ago. So we're gonna start today. Uh, Mike, uh, first of all, welcome and good morning. Uh, thank you. It's uh, it's great to be here, Greg. It's great to be uh, with your clients and colleagues. Uh, the Uniquely Rockefeller series is I've listened to a lot of the uh, podcasts and honored to be part of this group and including some of our idols uh, over the years, Larry Fink and, and others. So it's terrific to be here and it's great to be business partners uh, with Rockefeller. It's great. And uh, yeah, I know that you've listened to a number, Mike, and actually some of those like Larry Fink, we both had a relationship with, including, and we're going to get to this, the fact that PNC was uh, a, an owner of BlackRock for a long time, and Michael walked through that evolution. So Larry is somebody uh, that has definitely been in uh, Mike's orbit in mind. But let's start, Mike, before we get there, let's back up and talk a little bit about uh, PNC. Uh, Rockefeller and PNC are close partners, uh, and, and PNC is a, is a big name and a, and a very large bank. Uh, but it may not be as well known as some of the, the money center banks, and it has a unique and differentiated strategy that you and the leadership team there under uh, the CEO, the longtime CEO now, Bill Demchek, have been pursuing with great success. So can you talk to uh, our viewers about uh, PNC and give them a little bit more color on it? Sure, and, and uh, as you go through it, you'll see that the not broad, broadly well-known is, uh, is a good description by you. It's a little bit by design and, and part of the strategy, but uh, we celebrated 175th uh, anniversary last year, uh, and the bank has Rust Belt roots. We're still headquartered in Pittsburgh, and uh, I've got a uh, one of our beautiful bridges in the painting uh, uh, behind me today uh, as a special offering. Uh, 
But the Pittsburgh headquarters and the Rust Belt, uh, in many ways, uh, define who we are, a little bit gritty, hardworking, very collaborative uh, teamwork environment. And that culture is a huge part of what we've been focused on and, and we think a big differentiator for us. The bank has quietly grown. You mentioned uh, the BBVA acquisition, which closed uh, on June 1st uh, of this uh, of 2021, so just recently. And that was a deal we announced uh, a week or so before Thanksgiving at the really at the height of that second stage in the uh, pandemic. So it was a it was a well priced deal, and it's a deal that uh, makes us the number five bank in the country now, 560 billion in assets, and one of the few coast to coast physical franchises. But it's uh, within that top five, there's a big difference in the sense of uh, our focus hasn't been as much on building a big institutional sales and trading business. We we call ourselves more of a Main Street bank than a, than a Wall Street bank. We've got uh, really high-profile advisory businesses uh, with Harris Williams on the M&A side, Solbury in, in terms of the IPOs, but we've never tried to build a big sales and trading business and let that dominate uh, who we are. So it's it's relationships versus transactions, uh, and we we try to go about this and accomplish it by breaking the franchise down and still staying local. So we 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 have the franchise is 51 local communities, and we, and we have what's called a regional president in every community. And that regional president's goal is to to get us deeply embedded in the communities uh, for every community to believe and really feel uh, that we're that we are still a hometown bank. So we try to combine all of the attributes that people love about a regional uh, hometown bank, but bring the wherewithal, the capabilities, the expertise, the talent, uh, the size and scale of one of the top five banks in the country, or that really only one pursuing this model. And it, uh, you know, that started under our good friend, Jim Rohr, and he was passionate about it and, and we believe in it. And it's a huge uh, uh, differentiator. And, and, and um, you, you know, the way we talk about it is, uh, you know, in our old Wall Street days, and, and we can talk about them, there were great things uh, about the business model and the like, but we found great products, uh, unique products, and then you went out and marketed them broadly to, to companies. And I remember uh, one of the assignments I was given after someone uh, executed a very neat transaction, a sale leaseback of a headquarters building, I got a, an Excel spreadsheet sent to me by management and said, call all of your clients and pitch a sale leaseback. And that was regardless of whether they own the headquarters or uh, were interested in a sales <laughs> lease back. So uh, we've turned the model. We've tried to turn the model on its head and say, let's not worry about uh, upfront about getting unique products and finding customers to sell them to. Let's go find great companies, put great people in front of them, both in the community and in the office, understand what they're trying to do, and then add value to them. And um, what we've seen is uh, that we have the number one net promoter score in the industry. Uh, uh, we've got low attrition uh, from our relationship managers, which is key, and we've had strong through the cycle performance. We've been able to avoid some of the risks that come with pursuing different products versus uh, pursuing uh, different relationships. So at the end of the day, our goal is to help simply to find great companies and help them run their businesses better. It's not to win in the league tables. It's not to be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. So it is, in that sense, it's a little bit lower profile. You know, Mike, uh, given the scale that you've created, and I, I do want to come back to the BBVA in a second because uh, I, I think it was uh, a gutsy trade uh, acquisition given the timing of everything that you all did through that. 
Um, but given the, the size and the prominence of the bank and the strategy of we actually really are working backwards from client relationships, something I can tell uh, everybody listening, we've experienced directly at Rockefeller Capital Management. Uh, you, you, you ought to be able to, and I think you are, differentiate yourselves against the big money center banks uh, who are operating on, on more of a scale model, your sale leaseback example being you know, one version of that. Uh, you know, when you and I were working as investment bankers, the, the notion of telling the client, don't do the deal, uh, because you know it, it may not be in your interest and the price is high, it's not the right fit, was something that was the exception rather than the rule given from an advice standpoint. So I think this could be a very differentiated strategy that you're putting in place with the muscle of a top five bank. Uh, you're probably on the screen of these money center banks, uh, despite your your desire to stay out of the the you know the the uh, crosshairs. Yeah, well said. And and the focus is really if you just stay focused. If you again, if you find good companies, big and small, and and this applies to individuals on the wealth side or, or on the on the uh, primary consumer side. Uh, if you if you understand what they're trying to accomplish uh, or the challenges they're facing and then act collaboratively within our shop uh, to find solutions and then to de de deliver those solutions selfishly, uh, selflessly, uh, you take a lot of the noise of compensation and, and lead tables and, and the like out of it and you drive yourself by what customer needs are. So we sort we obsess around this and, and we say there's four things uh, we always say there are four things we got to do to make the model work. It starts with great people who don't leave. This is not a model that can handle a lot of turnover. So, so we obsess and I obsess over attrition, finding great people. Uh, we have a huge training program that we invest heavily in and have a large percentage of graduates of that still in the company. Uh, but finding great people um, who are passionate about their uh, communities, because uh, again, we operate locally and passionate about the businesses in those communities. Uh, and believe it's it's even mission based in some case if you make if your businesses if you cover these businesses and you help them perform better then the community stronger and and it's real tied to that and we we're running attrition rates of our relationship managers are about half the industry average and and that's one of the most important measures we look at versus loan production or, or whatever it may be do you have great people and do they stay around and and uh, and then getting them in front of clients so one is great people two is world-class products and services. We cannot say, go out, know your businesses, help your customers if you don't put world put a, a suite of products and services in their hands that makes them world-class. So we've invested heavily in areas like treasury management, treasury services, given that that's such a big part of what companies do. Uh, we've listened to our clients. We let them dictate uh, what our R&D is essentially what our clients say they're focused on and, and need. and. So niche acquisitions that we've done like Solbury and Harris Williams are all the match. Uh, we just uh, did one called Tempest Technology on the corporate payment side to try to help match what the client's needs are and, and, uh, and to get that right. So great people, world-class products and services. Uh, and then for us, it's culture and compensation. Uh, we, uh, we are asking our people uh, uh, we have relationship managers that are out in front and then all kinds of product partners. And we're asking them uh, to work collaborat collaboratively together uh, to deliver solutions. Uh, and it is part of that. It's hard to attribute in some cases who gets credit for what. So we've asked our people and we built a culture of trust around compensation 
and around this, and we work on this every day, that they can operate in an environment where they can contribute to, to an, it may be another banker's mission or another banker's client, but if they contribute to it, they'll be recognized for that, compensated fairly for that. Uh, and if we don't do that, we don't see how we're successful because we're just another big bank with a random set of products and services and a bunch of people running around in silos. So it's been a big part of uh, what, what Bill's uh, Demchek's done with the culture here is flatten it out. Uh, and, and we obviously embrace that. It makes it a great place to work. When the boss has a question, he doesn't call the number two in charge who calls uh, the next layer down, calls directly to the area that where he's going to get the most advice. So a big part of it. So uh, great people, world-class products and services, culture and compensation. And then uh, through the cycle, uh, we can talk about cycles later if you want, but obviously our business is highly cyclical and banking's pretty easy when things are going well and asset prices are high. I mean, we're selling money. It's a pretty commoditized product that people want. Um, uh, but if you don't run your business recognizing you go through cycles, then uh, uh, you're not there to support your clients when you need them the most. So we do a lot that uh, uh, the, the, the concept of uh, discretionary comp is a big part of that. So we're not paying for production. And then uh, we use a, uh, a fundamental risk return model and we try to not adjust the model to the environment. And, and uh, uh, we'll talk about my uh, background in, in a minute, but I was at uh, Maverick investing in financials and pre-crisis, this is before there was uh, it's probably 2006 before late 2006 at the there's a big industry conference every November called BAB and uh, executives go up and speak and it's open to investors and analysts and we're up there and Bill Demchek was speaking uh, running the corporate business at the time at PNC and so we're uh, loans no longer clear our hurdle returns so we're not making them and it was a stunning sort of uh, declaration at the time and said you know we can't get the, the right return because the market's gotten too competitive and conditions have gotten too loose and and, and uh, we're letting the loans go. Uh, and PNC went X growth and then was the best performer through the financial cycle. We saw in other cases where uh, uh, institutions, instead of holding to those returns, said, well, it's a lower risk world. We're not getting any production. It, we, our models must be screwed up. And they lowered their uh, hurdle returns. And then they were suddenly back in business. What happened on the backside of the crisis is uh, if you hold a constant return, uh, which Bill and PNC did, we produced in 2010, 11, 12, some of the greatest loan growth uh, and very, very 20% plus loan growth because everything cleared returns when competition disappeared. And when others got to that point, they said, hey, this is a more complicated, tougher world. So I have to raise my returns. And they took themselves out of the market at a great time. So through the cycle for us is a big deal. So it's really those four factors that, that we obsess over. That's what we do all day, every day uh, is, is focused on those. Well, you know, that's a great story. I mean, uh, uh, I was at uh, Merrill at the time and, and you know, uh, while Bill was saying return hurdle doesn't work for us and we're pulling back, there were some famous quotations uh, that, that will be out there forever. One uh, CEO saying, while the music is going on, you keep dancing. Uh, and, and that organization ended up with huge challenges. So the through the cycle notion really can differentiate an organization and clearly has for PNC. The other thing I'll say about uh, culture, we're building that here. Uh, now we have, uh, you know, 750 to 800 employees uh, focused on this notion of collegiality, collaboration. Uh, we're all rowing in the same direction, balanced with excellence. 
uh, it's hard to do anywhere in a in a firm, you know, in a bank with the number of employees that PNC has across such a broad footprint. It requires uh, the leadership from the top and Bill Demchek showing it year after year to make it part of the the you know the drinking water. So uh, credit to him and to you all for staying with that for so long. It's the only way to make it work and in any organization, but a big one requires constant you know uh, stressing of th this is what we're about. And as you said, the compensation model has to support it. Maybe we can go to to the deal, Mike, because this was a big uh, big move for PNC and for Bill as the leader. The the history of BBVA, because you know you funded that, uh, it'll take us back to BlackRock, and then you stepped up uh, all during COVID. Uh, and as I said, just as the observer, quite uh, a gutsy series of moves. And now you're the fifth biggest bank. Uh, in the United States with the scale to deliver this client-focused model differentially. Uh, can you can you talk though about how BBBA came to pass and, and the whole process there? Sure, the, uh, uh, as I said earlier, the deal closed, just closed uh, earlier this month, um, makes us the number five bank. It was a $12 billion transaction, announced it in November, a little over one, one times tangible book value pricing. Uh, for us, the ten, looking back 10 years ago when I got here and, uh, you, you know, we had two big focus areas, uh, which was expanding our footprint ge geographically out of the Rust Belt and East, and East Coast, diversifying that given the secular uh, uh, shift in population growth uh, to the South and, and to the Sun Belt and West. And uh, we, uh, about 10 years ago, the first part of that was acquiring uh, the, the U.S. Uh, commercial banking operations of RBC, which had built up a franchise prior to the crisis, and, and then we acquired that from them in the Southeast. Uh, the other big thing we we're focused on was uh, was investing in our core of our technology. And so over the last 10 years, we did the RBC transaction, made major shifts uh, in, in our operation centers, our data centers, consolidated platforms, modernized the technology, and then tried to expand uh, organically, but we always looked at BBVA as, as the most interesting and, and uh, a fitting franchise for us, given the number four position in Texas and the number one regional bank in the Sun Belt where, where we weren't. Uh, so strategically, uh, all you have to do is look at the map. It, it fits like a glove, and we think we can add a lot of complementary products onto them, and, and, it, and it was well-priced. Um, well, back up uh, to, to how we got there, uh, I think we all remember I certainly talking to you in the early days, uh, Greg, among other uh, a lot of our longtime peers and, and mentors as to what was going to go on at the onset of COVID. Uh, it was a pretty scary time. Financing markets uh, backed up pretty severely and, and draws on bank lines of credit were high. We had in since 1995 and, and all the credit uh, to, to former C CEOs Tom O'Brien and Jim Rohr, we had owned BlackRock in its entirety in 1995 for $240 million and uh, had an amazing run uh, uh, you know, as partners with Larry and created just billions and billions of value for, for PNC. The asset had become a, a financial asset, an unbelievable financial asset, uh, uh, but it wasn't strategic any longer, and uh, there were some regulatory burdens on both sides, uh, both impacting their ability to operate freely and then some of the stress testing numbers for us. So when the crisis uh, came along, a uh, decision was made uh, to, to sell the asset. Um, uh, we booked uh, $14 billion or you know, mid-teens billion type gain on it, which came on after many other gains uh, before that. We wish we could have owned the asset forever. 
But what it allowed us to do is, uh, in a time of great uncertainty uh, in the banking industry, and, and we've seen it in cycle after cycle, banks with the right capital, liquidity, and, and focused businesses into a cycle perform the best through it. It allowed us uh, to, to book reserves and liquidity uh, for whatever may come uh, through COVID, obviously, uh, with government support and other stimulus. Things went a very different way in the financing space and in the credit space, uh, but we were prepared to support our clients. And we said uh, history would tell you that opportunities, dislocation opportunities appear during uh, uh, times of a crisis. And um, one of those uh, you, you know, was BBVA is number one on our strategic list uh, for a long time. So in effect, we're able to swap an unbelievable asset in BlackRock, but non-strategic for the ability to book reserves and liquidity to prepare for the worst of the crisis on behalf of our clients, which is still, you know, the root of our business and uh, and be able to buy a highly strategic asset at a very attractive price uh, uh, at that point during uh, the, the, the crisis. So now focus is on execution. They're great partners. We found great people. The markets are everything we thought they'd be. Texas is just going crazy. We've got leadership positions in Arizona. Denver, uh, New Mexico, Florida. Uh, so it's uh, we, we couldn't be more excited about it. In the last piece, I raised the technology investment earlier. Uh, we announced this deal in November. We closed in June. By the end of this year, we'll have fully fully run rate for next year, $900 million in synergies, largely from the investments in technology. So I think it's a pretty significant paradigm shift in the ability to, to leverage modernized technology to generate massive synergies. And what that does is creates this $900 million that wasn't there before that allows us to continue to invest uh, in, in modern technology, digital, and, and all the other impacts. So multiple benefits strategically and financially uh, in the transaction. Uh, we wish we could own BlackRock forever. I think every person who has invested money could own BlackRock forever. And Larry and Gary and those guys have done an incredible job. Uh, so we'll miss it. But, uh, you know, you have to make decisions like this. I was, uh, I mean, uh, uh, as you said, uh, BlackRock, a great asset, uh, uh, you know, for a long time and probably going forward. Having said that, you guys stayed with it for a very long time because, I, I, you know, we took it public at Merrill in 99 and PNC stayed in and stayed in and to sell it at the t point in time where you did in order to buy a prize uh, asset and, and take, you know, create the scale that you created uh, and have PNC positioned. Again, you know, I have to say, as a, you know, somebody who's been in the industry for a long time, but fifth biggest bank in the country, it doesn't roll off the, the fingertips because you all just do your thing. And as you said, you're not looking for the profile, but you now have the scale to, to execute uh, a unique strategy, client-centric, unique culture against the money center banks uh, in a in a in a much stronger way so uh, you know kudos to bill and, and to everybody uh, let's go back Mike before we do macro which we'll, we'll move on to in a second because you are a student of of uh, of markets and and rates and Fed and you and I have um, talked about uh, those topics for for the you know for a quarter century including uh, in your time at Maverick, uh, you being among the earliest to see the, the stresses in the real estate uh, and mortgage market, particularly subprime. So let's go back to your career for a second, because there are multiple stops, not a typical career, investment banker, investor, executive. Can we spend a little time on that? And then we'll go to macro and get your thoughts on, on that. Sure. The um, it, it, probably, it started pretty uh, uh, non-traditional. Also, I grew up in New England. Uh, 
dad was a professor, uh, mom was a teacher, and uh, wasn't a big, uh, we weren't talking about the stock market at the table uh, every night, but I, I had an interest in business, went to Penn, and really got the introduction to financial institutions uh, at a track meet. I was a runner and um, uh, needed some uh, needed a summer job, and and uh, I was actually able to dig up. This is the uh, program uh, from the track meet. If you've ever been or competed in track, nobody uh, goes to a track meet in earnest. But there's a, a pamphlet that tells you what time the events are, and on the back of this pamphlet that I just flashed up. I uh, said, if you're looking uh, uh, for uh, a job, these former runners ran into Fleet Financial Group, which is a which is an old New England-based bank uh, run by Terry Murray in in Rhode Island. And so I called the number and and uh, uh, had uh, Excel on my uh, resume. Uh, I think I used the term comfortable with Excel, and uh, and, and in the late uh, the late '80s, that was. Uh, uh, apparently a differentiator. I don't know what form of complicated coding it would be equivalent to today, but at least then it was di differentiated. And when I called into Fleet, they said, we've got a new employee uh, who's going to run the M&A group and he's got a talented group with them and uh, they need people who can run Excel because he came from a legal background and doesn't know numbers that well. And uh, so that individual ended up being Brian Moynihan. He had no problem with numbers. He just needed someone to run them constantly for him. So uh, so I had a great introduction uh, uh, to, to the financial world uh, through someone obviously has been uh, been very successful since then. And uh, at the time, Fleet was rolling up uh, New England banks as the real estate crisis was going on. So I learned M&A early uh, and often and uh, from Brian and, and Terry Lachlan, who we great colleague of his who we tragically lost uh, a couple years ago. Um, and it was terrific. From there, I went. Um, uh, into a traditional investment banking M&A program. Obviously, uh, that's where we met Greg, and uh, we hit a period in, uh, of consolidation in the uh, financial services industry, and, and we started a ton of that in the time at Morgan Stanley, and uh, big consolidation among the banks, and uh, 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 learned a lot, learned commitment to getting numbers right and excellence and the like. And um, from there, it's, it's really been a story of following mentors. I, uh, a, a great colleague and friend, and uh, uh, one of the best partners I've ever had, uh, Gunnar Overstrom, left Morgan Stanley and went to Maverick to run the financial services investment fund, followed him over there. And uh, it was in a fascinating time in the early 2000s to invest in financials, as you saw the emergence of one cycle and the formation of another cycle. Uh, uh, and, and we learned a lot about that. And uh, as you said, we're able to get um, some of the uh, imbalances in financials right. And, and uh, we went into the uh, financial crisis with about 25% of Maverick's capital, total capital base of Maverick short financials. And um, at the time, there was a lot of pressure on us. Is, isn't there some financial institution you, you could own uh, that will go down less than the others or maybe even go up? And, and uh, we ran, we did all of our work and study in one of the most stable and, and best positioned banks out there was PNC. And, and we had known, I known Bill Demchek previously, but really got to know him as we went through that, we became big uh, shareholders of the company and uh, PNC went into the financial crisis with no credit card business, so no subprime mortgage business, no leverage finance business, uh, no national credit card non-relationship business and, um, and and performed incredibly well through it and was able to do uh, a couple of big transactions and really change uh, their position in the industry forever. Um, 
financials got to be relatively uninvestable after the financial crisis, so given the government ownership and and uh, an old colleague, obviously Moynihan had uh, uh, risen up at B of A, and I went down for a couple of years and helped run the restructuring uh, to offset some of the mortgage losses and the like. And and it was a it was a unbelievable period. Uh, we we simplified the balance sheet, which is a great lesson of staying focused and not scope creeping. There's going to there's constant pressure running a large financial institution to do all kinds of interesting things to make money. But you really I learned there you really have to stay true to the strategy, and and everything we did was true to the strategy. Raised capital, sold assets, uh, cut 10 billion in operating expenses, and uh, and obviously B of A has done tremendous under Brian and and, and has come roaring back. That really uh, the exposure there really got piqued my interest in running a business. So 10 years ago, uh, Bill gave me the opportunity to come here and run the corporate business, and it's uh, uh, it's been a tremendous run. A lot of the model stuff I talked about earlier. It's uh, it felt more purpose uh, in my career than any of the other stuff I've done before versus transactions or stockings and the like, where we can go out and help businesses every day uh, achieve uh, financial aspirations, overcome challenges uh, and the like. So it's been a great, uh, it's been a great run. And, uh, but it's a series, it's a career that, you know, you reflect back on it. It's, it's all about mentorship and, and, and finding partners and, and, uh, People both support you and, and, and allow you to continue to challenge yourself. Uh, it's been a, a, a tremendous career uh, already uh, and uh, lots of different stops, as you said. And I would second that. I, I give that counsel constantly to younger people. Um, you know, my kids are all in their uh, in their 20s now and to them and their and their friends that mentorship and working with the great people with, a, uh, you know, a, a great culture and, and, a, and a mission uh, is more important in many ways than the substance of what the entity is about, uh, and and I I think that that uh, that's been your your career uh, in a nutshell, uh, and I can validate uh, I I can't believe it's been ten years, but I can validate the path for you at PNC because you have uh, all, all along the way uh, it's been it's been a great stop for you and, and a great place. Um, so, Mike, let's let's build on what you're doing now as we segue into macro with um, with uh, with all those listening, because they're they're going to be very interested given the scale of PNC's footprint and your experience on all sides of uh, of the markets uh, and how you're seeing things. So, PNC's footprint across the U.S. from a corporate standpoint is very significant. Companies of all sizes in all markets. It's a national footprint. Thousands of uh, U.S. corporates. So, how how is the corporate sector faring uh, across the United States at this point in time? And as you said, last March, you and I were having conversations. How is the federal government and the Fed going to get so many of these businesses that are shut through this time? And and um, you know, a lot of the the charts that that we look at uh, are V-shaped now. So, um, but that doesn't mean every 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 sector and and every part of the country is doing doing great. There's differential performance. So, uh, can you take us through the corporate sector in the states? Yeah, and and uh, the timing's good. I've been on the road 22 of the last 28 days, and 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 seeing lots of companies across the country. There is some geographical differences, but uh, even within them, companies, corporates are performing well, and and they're generally upbeat. Uh, and as you said, that's a big change from a year ago. We, uh, to give you some proxy of this, we obviously constantly work, we, we, we lend money. So we, we risk rate uh, on a credit basis, all of our borrowers 
and we do that uh, very routinely. And if you look back a year ago, ignore real estate, commercial real estate for a second, but just, just the general corporate and industrial space. Uh, a year ago, uh, we were downgrading almost every file we opened, uh, largely driven by the shutdown and, and, and other factors. Um, and that was the our downgrade ratio a year ago was as high as it's ever been. So uh, uh, more nicks down for, for corporates than we had ever done before. Today, in the, again, in the general corporate space, to talk about real estate in a second, we're running at two to one ratio of upgrades to downgrades, uh, which is very uh, significant. That, that's not normal. And um, so companies are, are generally upbeat. I'll talk, talk about some of the stuff they're focused on in a second. The M&A market's obviously incredibly hot. It's up 300%, 300% plus from last year, which is uh, ignore for a second. It's up 30% on a very robust 2019. The financing markets are wide open in part uh, uh, due to the, due to the government support and the amount of liquidity in the system, but overall it, it's a very positive sense. Um, on the flip side, we are we continue to see net downgrades in the commercial real estate space uh, and some of the COVID high impact sectors like travel and leisure. Uh, but but it is better. It's incrementally better, and the the improvement is escalating. Uh, leisure travel is obviously very strong right now. Business travel, we business travel and expenses, which we can have good visibility into, it's still running well, well below normal in the you know 25, 30 percent range uh, from where you would see it. Uh, and then we're we're spending a lot of time in the commercial real estate space. Some of the uh, immediate challenges that came with COVID, so retail, uh, especially uh, those are better. Uh, and now we're just studying uh, potential impacts from from long term secular changes. And, you know, probably the most talked about thing these days is work from home, work from office. And what's the impact where we lend in urban markets, both multifamily for people who go into offices and, and then offices themselves. So we're studying uh, that. So general corporate, very good uh, position, Re certain parts of real estate uh, and certain parts of the travel sectors still studying the um, very common every single conversation with every customer common pain points are high attrition uh so they had a, they had very low attrition levels uh this is employee attrition low low employee attrition levels uh during 2020 it's now elevated and they're fighting to keep talent and then they can't fill vacancies obviously on the on the labor front and then and then the ongoing supply chain uh interruptions are, are, are frustrating a, a lot of them um and the focus areas are what you to think they're, they're, it's about how do you manage this return uh, to office and and, uh, and and balance all that comes with that. Uh, how do you leverage all the digital um, uh, advancements they made during the crisis and how do you maintain some of the productivity gains? Overall for us, it's a great time to be in front of clients because many clients who uh, uh, have, have seen a shift in priorities and a shift in business mix are, if we can execute on that value-added model, uh, it, it leaves us in a really good position. And when, when you take that, Mike, and you lift out and you look at the overall economy, um, uh, how do you see it? You know, the phrase I've been using, and, and I, I'm standing by it. I think uh, I'm witnessing it. You know, here in in, uh, in Midtown New York, almost every day or every day, there are more people and a more more activity. Uh, and and throughout New York, there are places that are are, are robust in terms of restaurants and and people uh, really enjoying participating in things that were on hold. So I talk about a slingshot. 
you know, it's it's been pulled back and pulled back and pulled back throughout COVID, and now it's letting go and moving forward. And you you get rates of GDP growth that we haven't seen in in really your working career and mine. So what about the rest of the year, 22, and then we'll get to, you know, fiscal and and Fed and and how they get out and how they're doing. But before we get there, your your folk, you know, how do the next 12 to 18 months uh, look uh, on the overall economy? Yeah, you, you know, obviously the comments uh, on the corporate side you just heard, it's it's upbeat, M&A is act, active, strategic uh, strategy is active. Uh, the corporates will rebuild, we, we expect corporates to rebuild inventory later next year, later this year. We expect trade to open back up as some of the cases, uh, uh, you know, come down globally. So overall, we're, we're, we, like everybody else, are forecasting well above normal growth for this year. We're saying 7% plus. There's obviously numbers out there hot, much higher than that. And then uh, we're, we measure Q4 to Q4. We see Q4 21 to Q4 22 above 3%. So that's even uh, you know above trend lines. But the important thing uh, you know to focus on within there, and 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 that's supported again by, by the c- corporate rebuilds and. And the like, and then uh, significant excess cash with consumers, two trillion plus that we expect to be spent over time, and we're seeing very robust card off our card data. You know, robust spending off of 19 levels, uh, not 20. Obviously, it's up off 20, but you go back to 19. So, uh, consumer and corporate in great shape. But if you think back, and and we can talk about it next, we we just put the biggest, and we had to do it given the conditions of COVID. We just put the biggest stimulus in history on the economy. It's supposed to be. Above growth, uh, we stimulated on it as a percentage of GDP significantly more than we did in the Great Financial Crisis and more than we did in World War II. Uh, so at unprecedented levels, so it's supposed to be there. So I think a lot of the the focus is on how sustainable that growth is, uh, uh, especially if um, you know some of the noise we heard last week. Uh, does does the accommodative policy change, and and what's the what's the supportable growth from there? But Totally agree with you. These numbers are off the charts, and uh, and it's going to, and we're seeing it all, almost all parts of the economy. So, and but let's let's go back to last week where the Fed started to to uh, hint about a different direction, or more than hint. Although, in my eyes, Powell tried to back away from it a little bit yesterday and and say, uh, don't worry, it's temporary. Where do you see that? Are they moving quickly enough to address uh, the inflation threat? Do, do you think he's right? Because again, you have a lot of insight into this through all these corporations that you work with. Is he right that it's mostly um, transitory bumps in in pricing due to supply chain issues and and things that will go away, um, or should they be moving more aggressively on the inflation front? I, I've been talking about the fact that they're somewhat constrained by the fiscal side, which has also been massive, because our debt is so big. If rates got too high. Um, the federal government gets squeezed in a way that is is difficult, and the Fed's actually thinking about that now. Maybe that shouldn't be part of their mandate, but I think it's it, that mandate creep is occurring. How do you? And again, you've been looking at this for a long time. How do you see all of that? Are they are they acting as they should? Would they, would you change things? Uh, how do we get all the stimulus out and still have a healthy environment uh, from an economic standpoint? Yeah, obviously a lot going on there. You know, we. The way we try to, we don't. Uh, we've got a, we've got chief investment officers and chief economists that go through in detail and all this stuff. In terms of what we try to do as a company, we one of the big things we do is we recognize that we operate in a highly cyclical business. 
Uh, the cycles happen on a very regular basis. And ignore COVID for a minute. We came into COVID uh, with the longest uh, up economic cycle uh, in history. Um, and there were imbalances that we were watching. And we don't try to predict cycles. That's too hard. And uh, we just try to prepare our balance sheet, prepare our operations, and prepare our customers for them, recognizing that they do happen. But we were looking at imbalances coming into COVID of you know significant uh, relative to historical levels, significant corporate debt levels, and significant government debt levels. Ironically, versus where we were in the financial crisis, the consumer was in great shape in the financial sector. Us, you, you know, had, had uh, capital and liquidity was in the best shape ever. So, sort of a flip of the imbalances you saw going into 2007. Um, and we were still in an accommodative, you know, coming into 2020, we were still in an accommodative mode that started in the great in the financial crisis, uh, you know, in 08 uh, and 09. We tr we had tried to extract ourselves from that, uh, which tends to be the the the, the uh, catalyst for cycles historically. Tried in 2013, and then again tried in that 2015 to 2018 period where interest rates, you know, they raised the Fed funds rate up to two and a half percent. So the most important thing we took away from COVID is don't confuse COVID uh, with an economic cycle and don't confuse a fully vaccinated status with the end of an economic cycle on an all clear basis. It was a health crisis. We didn't pull back on, uh, the Fed didn't pull back on accommodative policy, again, which tends to happen and, and you see a reset in asset valuations. We didn't have that, We really what happened was the opposite, which was a significant stimulus, uh, went into went into it, uh, into the economy. So we're finding ourselves in a position where, you know, where where do you go from here? I think the only thing we took away from last week, we went from, you know, Powell had said we were not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. Uh, to the word was we now thinking about talking about talking about tapering or raising <laughs> rates. So to date, nothing uh, nothing ha has happened and. And again, we're not in the uh, we're not stock pickers. We're running the you know run the bank, taking care of clients, trying to help them solve their problems. But the you know the bull and the bear cases are out there. The the bull case uh, you know, and we see some of this. We we, we do think most of the inflation uh, is transitory. But the the bull case is that we are past we're, we're past the worst of the inflationary pressures, and you can see it in lumber prices or or copper prices. Uh, the Fed. You know, again, the bull that believes the Fed will continue to accommodate, or if, or if they do pull back, it'll be at a glacial slow pace. Uh, and and, um, and uh, it's a great opportunity to continue to own stocks. And and the bear case is the uh, the Fed is this is the beginning of a transition away from accommodative policy to something else. And whenever you have those transitions, there's dislocation in the markets. And I think you saw some of that volatility pick up last week. And the people that are hardcore believers there, obviously you know, aren't as interested in, in being active in the market. But for us, you, you know, we watch these imbalances, we study them, we understand historical cyclical patterns, but most importantly, we're out, you know, calling our clients, helping them understand it and prepare their balance sheets. And whether it's hedging currencies, hedging interest rate risk, the different imbalances that could come as we work our way out of it, that that's where the primary focus is. Yeah, let's go back. That's a good segue. Uh, let's go back to the PNC operating model because there's another wrinkle here that uh, that you all have built in that I think is uh, is uh, if not unique on the on the more atypical side, and and I think is got to be well received by your clients. Uh, 
but I saw an ad uh, during a, a, one of the golf events for your new low cash mode. Uh, and you're working, I know you're working on a mission-based SPAC uh, empowerment and inclusion capital. Um, how do you fit all of this into your operating model? Because it's clearly intentional. Yeah, very, very intentional, Continua, a continuum of the model. And we talked earlier, we are in 51 communities. Uh, our goal through our regional president structure uh, is to embed ourselves in those communities, support those communities, and we believe we're only as strong as the communities we operate in. So uh, we want to be present everywhere. We want to we support uh, uh, the right causes in those markets uh, to help the markets uh, continue to strengthen, help the population continue to strengthen. And, uh, and do the right thing. And, and we found if we do the right thing, and that's often uh, uh, either at a short-term cost of profits uh, or a, a foregoing of profits, but if we do the right thing and, and stay consistent to our values, uh, all of our, our four major constituents uh, benefit that, clients, communities, uh, shareholders, uh, and employees. And, um, uh, you know, I think over if anything's happened during COVID and, and the killing of George Floyd and some of the events around that, our view on conscious capitalism, if you will, doing the right thing is is only gotten more stronger and and having more conviction in it. But it's not something that's new to the company. Uh, we've had for 15 years, and Jim Rohr started it, a Grow Up Great program, which has been the signature program of our our foundation, which focuses on early childhood education pre. Uh, pre-entering school and and we found and it's been in Harvard Business School case studies and the like it's a an 11 for every dollar invested it's 11 dollars of return for the communities uh, if you get and improve uh, early childhood education it's over 500 million dollars has gone into that we've impacted 7 million kids that's been the foundational program over the last year and and uh, 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 a lot of the stuff that you mentioned has come into effect, uh, specifically low cash mode. It's it's a hot topic that, it, you know, uh, Bill's been passionate about really, I believe, started the debate on. Uh, this is overdraft fees in our industry. $30 billion of overdraft fees get charged in, in the banking industry, often not known to the customer, and, and they add up quickly. And what low cash mode does uh, is give puts the control uh, the, the control of uh, whether you overdraft or balance your account back into the consumer's hands through real time alerts and swipe left swipe right uh, you can control it versus seeing it on your next statement and getting getting caught by it that when we announced doing that we gave up hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue the belief being again that, that that's the right thing to do in the long term that's not consistent with our values in in terms of how how we make money you have to give uh help clients achieve goals and aspirations or overcome problems uh and um so that's been uh, that's been great for us the um Post George Floyd, we we committed uh, and we've added to it. it's now a billion and a half dollars to our foundation in an effort to to promote inclusion and and end racism. And Bill did a good cha job challenging the business leaders, including me, on leveraging ways in which we, we effectively operate in our business. How can we translate that into making a difference? And through Solbury, we've been one of the leading advisors, both on IPOs and on SPACs. And out of that, we we came up with uh, empowerment and inclusion capital, which we took public in February, uh, 276 raised 276 million dollars. It's unique in the sense there are plenty of SPACs out there, and and lots been written about them. We're passionate about ours. We have the first all diverse board in New York Stock Exchange history. 
um, which is great. It's unfortunate that we have to be first. We hope we're not uh, the only one out there. And uh, but that was an important piece of it. And then uh, the really differentiating piece is we as uh, sponsors uh, of of the SPAC of Empowerment Inclusion Capital have committed to give away 100% of our sponsor shares and the promote to the foundation to add to the billion and a half dollars. So we're all looking for great business. Uh, uh, is uh, you've been helpful. Uh, you and your bankers have been helpful to us as as we look for it. We're, our CEO is Harold Ford is doing a great job for us. And uh, but but it goes back to how can we leverage what we're good at as business and. We've we've uh, taken that further. Uh, another example is we we saw uh, a lot of what worked with the PPP program, a lot of what didn't work uh, with PPP, and we've gone out and, and and started here in Pittsburgh with our own partnership, with our own capital, working with the city and and the Urban Revitalization Association to start our own PPP lending program targeted specifically uh, uh, to diverse business owners. We're either pursuing rapid growth or trying to recover uh, from the crisis. So we're trying to extend uh, what we're good at as a business uh, in a way that we can generate value for the foundation and affect a positive outcome uh, in the industry. The response of our employees, obviously the response of our clients has been tremendous uh, around this and it goes back to, to, to strong values, strong culture, local presence and, and focus around it. Yeah, I mean, I'd say two things on this one. Uh, we have uh, our bankers have been working with uh, your team and, and Harold on uh, on finding an appropriate uh, company for for this uh, mission based back to to buy, which is part of the way you view a client relationship. And I do when it comes across in PNC and Rockefeller multifaceted approach all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. But the second thing I'd say, Mike, is we've got across Rockefeller Asset Management in particular, but really across the firm now, a focus on uh, ESG investing. Uh, and the things that PNC is doing uh, in terms of the community and everything you just went through, it, it factors into the investment lens at places like Rockefeller Asset Management, but also really across the industry. Back to Larry, it, this is something BlackRock's pushing hard. Uh, and we believe that uh, investing with an ESG lens is, is really a secular change. Talk again about my kids in their 20s or your kids and millennials and Generation Z and how they view uh, the role of the corporation uh, as much broader in a community. So that will redound to PNC's benefit. And I know that, you know, that's just one, it's an important constituency for you shareholders, but that's not the only reason you're doing it. But from a shareholder standpoint, it's a very different world than the one you and I grew up in. And shareholders will reward companies that are smart about the things that you all are doing. So uh, I think it's terrific yeah. in, in, in many ways. And 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 we believe as strong as we ever have, and and are seeing uh, uh, strong evidence around it that again, if we do the right thing, uh, our major constituents will all benefit, uh, and, and that and and will be a better company for it. And the uh, the uh, to the point on ESG and the like, we're the first regional bank to issue a green bond. Uh, we uh, we just launched a major uh, plan, a $88 billion community investment plan, loans, investments uh, across our, our, our uh, low to moderate income neighborhoods and diverse neighborhoods. This, to your point, it uh, this is it's uh, it stretches across all parts of the organization. And uh, but if you start with a strong value set, um, 
and a uh, very focused uh, strategy around helping clients. Uh, the stuff isn't, it's not, uh, it's a not, not an unnatural act to do it. It's very, it's part of who we are and a very natural act of what we're doing. Yeah, uh, let's uh, shift gears. Uh, uh, there's a couple more things I'd like to get to in the time here. One is return to work. Um, a, you see a lot of what's happening uh, with your corporate clients and B, uh, PNC is thinking about its own return to work or, or in the process of executing it. Um, curious about both near term and long term here, because you've worked at many great companies, covered so many great companies over the years uh, in different ways. Um, you know, what are some of the things you're focused on at PNC in the near term? But what do you think will be long lasting for both PNC and really across corporate America? Are there a couple things that we can say are likely to be uh, more fundamental long-term changes in the way that work takes place? Yeah, I the, for, first of all, in, in every company uh, I've seen over the last few weeks, it's you, you have to carve off before you we get to adding uh, value and solutions and, and set you have to carve off 10 minutes to talk about this return to uh, off. I mean, it is a dominant theme for everyone that's trying to figure out and every day we, we read new news on it. Um, uh, I'd say first and foremost, we were uh, su surprised and, and obviously pleasantly surprised about how well the firm trends after 175 years of you know operating one way and almost overnight we transitioned uh, to an out of the office uh, work mode and, and our people did a tremendous job dealing with uh, lots of uncertainty and uh, lots of change and continue to operate effectively for our clients. So uh, we did a great job transitioning away. That said, we you know when you listen back to the to the model I talked about earlier, our business is about meeting with people. It's about relationships and that's hard to sustain, we believe, longer term, uh, you know, via Zoom or Meets or whatever it may be. So we'll be back and and um, uh, uh, and we're starting to see our clients de desire that. And, and we really believe the locally delivered model is differentiating us right now. So first is a headquarter city where everybody travels out of covering industry verticals around the country. We've always been in the market. So we, we see people at restaurants, we see them at church, we see them at school events, our bankers do. So as a continuum, but the uh, we'll, we'll be back, and and uh, we we've launched a, a voluntary return to work already. Um, uh, but we're learning every day as as part of that. But it's but it's super important to who we are to to be together. There are certain functions we've learned that are highly measurable pro, uh, on a pro, uh, uh, on a performance and production basis that we have moved out of the uh, office uh, forever and 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 have that option available to people where it's. You have X amount of things to do, and you're supposed to do them in this time. It's very easily measurable. When you get to broader relationship business, it's harder to do that. But we're uh, we're trying to find the right mix of of uh, of keeping uh, some of the tremendous productivity gains we saw uh, the way to leverage digital and technology uh, uh, to to bring the best of those worlds together. But we're an in-person business, and we have to get back there. And and uh, both us and our clients are anxious for that. So so we'll see how that plays out. You know, we've uh, we've said fundamentally the same thing that uh, uh, clients visit us. Uh, we uh, put together better ideas, and there's a creative process through being together. But that, uh, as you said, we'll take advantage of the tools uh, that are now available and and some of the enhancements that this uh, this uh, pandemic uh, has brought to so much of uh, of uh, the corporate world here and really around the world. Um, I, I got. I can't one, say on. You know, I mentioned it earlier, uh, and the thing that um, 
you know, it's this isn't simply a question, are you in office, not in office? There's competitive dynamics to this playing out, and it's on the minds of every client we talk to. Uh, there are significant employee engagement parts of it, and, uh, and again, competitively in, within industries, uh, this is turning into a real war on talent. So it, it, this is a, it's a major topic for a whole bunch of reasons. I think it's going to be front and center for a while. I agree, Mike. And actually, every conversation starts. It doesn't really matter who it's with. You know, where are you? You know, where where, where are you physically? The individual you're talking to. Where is your company? Uh, it's why we're 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 emphasizing the part that uh, goes to clients and the creative process, and at the same time, uh, saying that uh, we want to be smart about this. We want to not only keep all our great people, but uh, have great people want to come here. And I know you're thinking about it the same way. Uh, one more that I'd like to, to get across uh, uh, and get your views on, because uh, you have seen so much over the course of your career, uh, and I, uh, it's not just the years that, that you've been working, it's the, the different jobs and the perspectives, and I can tell the, the, the group again listening uh, that you were one of the early ones on the challenges uh, in the mortgage and subprime market. And, and put your money there from an investor standpoint, as you said, 25% of all of Maverick's uh, capital heading into the credit crisis, short financials. So you've seen so much over the course of your career uh, and a lot of it in advance, which uh, is a compliment I don't, I don't provide to many and most don't earn it. Uh, so looking out now five or 10 years in advance again, uh, what, what major changes in the world, not limited to the financial industry, uh, but in the in the broader world, could change business, banking, the 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 world that we're all living in here uh, from a, a U.S. Uh, economic standpoint. I'm not, uh, I don't know if I have anything that you put 25% of Mavericks capital against, but uh, <laughs> and, and this uh, uh, probably stating the obvious, but obviously the the, the importance of technology. Um, we um, we invested heavily uh, coming into the uh, uh, COVID, uh, you know, as as a way of driving our business. But the ability to leverage technology, whether it's through M and A, uh, uh, which we saw, which we've seen in the BBVA transaction, uh, or uh, uh, you know, working against uh, cyber threats every day, which are uh, intensifying. Uh, and, 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 you know, we have to represent that and protect our customers. Uh, we move money, we, uh, we, we hold money. Uh, so huge investments in technology. And then how do we go to market? Uh, we talked about digital earlier. It's just going to be incredibly dominant theme. Uh, and, and we have a lot of resources, both financially, uh, uh, strategically, uh, mindshare around consumer payments, corporate payments. And we think these are areas that, have already changed a lot. Corporate payments will change a lot more. It's generally inefficient how it's done today. So we think uh, obviously in and around technology is going to be huge and, and that's going to be a big area of investment. Um, the uh, the, the uh, uh, importance of uh, staying flexible, obviously, and from the workforce and, uh, you know, preparing for stability, but expecting the opposite has been a big theme. And then uh, final thing I'd say is uh, the private equity industry, the proliferation of private equity as a as a mainstream business owner. It's been incredible over the last 10 years. Uh, we see that continuing and have built a lot of businesses around supporting uh, that industry uh, in terms of ancillary services and, and secured lending products. But uh, they had a tremendous uh, period through COVID and, and we continue to see private equity proliferate in a, in a very, very rapid way. So, so some ideas there. Uh, 
your uh, your audience on the call and some of my colleagues all have much better longer term secular ideas. We stay focused, uh, you know, we remain focused on serving our clients, understand their challenges uh, and aspirations and, and, and putting value added resources in that ultimately help their, them run their businesses and better and, and support, support their communities further. Uh, really well said. And actually, just to reinforce, because we're in the same bucket uh, on uh, technology being at the heart of uh, of uh, a, any corporation. I say this, you know, early in our careers, you, you might have had the CIO report to, you know, a CAO or something like that. Uh, technology is front and center in everything that we're doing in any company in any industry that's not trying to put in place best-in-class technology, I think is is uh, is in trouble over time here. So 100% in technology. And on private equity, you got to the end. This is one reason why I want to ask you this question, because you always get to these kernels. Um, we've been building an, uh, a, a, an investment platform here for our clients uh, where they make investments in alternative managers, sometimes directly into companies that are doing capital rounds. And that's because for high net worth and ultra high net worth clients, a significant percentage of their assets can go into more liquid investments in the range of alternatives to your point, uh, including in the growth of the private equity industry are, are tremendous. And uh, so that's been an area we've been investing in validating, uh, or at least we're alongside you in seeing private equity uh, as, a, as a major growth lever. Um, Mike, this is tremendous, uh, fantastic uh, range, uh, everything I would have expected, uh, really great for, for the audience. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me and thanks for uh, being great business partners. Same. And uh, I always end with quotations. I promised you I would do that. These two are, are two that you'll appreciate, uh, you may use. They certainly are two that you've lived. Uh, uh, Thomas Edison said, quote, uh, vision without execution is just hallucination. Uh, Mike Lyons being one of the great all-time executors throughout his career. And the next one is Vince Lombardi. Uh, I borrow uh, Lombardi quite a bit, Aristotle and others, on the topic of excellence. Uh, but Lombardi had some really good, direct, concise ones, and he said the following, quote, the quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence, regardless of their chosen field of endeavor. And you've had a career in multiple buckets in the broad financial services uh, industry, but you've been committed to that excellence in every uh, leg of your journey. So thank you again for the partnership with PNC for being here today. And to our clients, colleagues, and other friends of Rockefeller, thank you for listening uh, to Mike Lyons and me again today. Uh, stay well, and we will continue to bring you best-in-class insight into the markets around us and business models, differentiating business models like PNCs going forward here. All the best.